but I'll be speaking from God's Word this morning, and I'm grateful for the privilege to do that. But uh, I did want to give you two recommendations I was going to make as part of the panel. Um, whenever I speak, I try to give you a, uh, a recommended book or resource that you could pursue. And uh, there's two that I wanted to share with you this morning as you think about uh, keeping your focus on your relationship with the Lord. So here goes my book recommendations uh, for you this morning as you start the new year. The first one's entitled Enjoying God, Experience the Power and Love of God in Everyday Life by Tim Chester. Uh, This is a very accessible, what I mean by that is very readable, easy to understand book on cultivating your relationship with the Lord. This is just uh, a newer book, came out in the last couple of years, it's in the book shack, uh, but entitled Enjoying God by Tim Chester, and I know it will be an encouragement to you. Uh, As most of you know, I'm a fan of the uh, Puritans, and so I'm often reading one of their books and have found uh, them to be really a tremendous source and resource in my life for uh, spiritual encouragement and nurture. And the book that has just absolutely uh, comforted, encouraged, strengthened, and excited my heart in the last couple of weeks has been this book by Matthew Henry entitled The Pleasantness of a Religious Life. It's really one of the best I've read. Um, the Pleasantness of a Religious Life, subtitle is Life as Good as It Can Be by Matthew Henry. And, um, you know, what I love about the Puritans, of course, is just their uh, rigorous uh, comprehension of the great doctrines that we find in God's Word. These men knew the Word of God in ways that uh, many of us today pale by way of comparison, but they were very committed to not only the knowledge of doctrine and truth, but its application to our own hearts and lives. And so um, I love the complement of deep truth with deep application. And um, The Pleasantness of a Religious Life by Matthew Henry is a book that I assure you will be a great blessing uh, if you have a chance to pick it up and, and read through it. So those are my book recommendations. You have gotten those on the panel discussion. Uh, you'll have to wait for the other guy's recommendations uh, when we get our act together in that regard. Um, but both of those books really relate to what I want to share this morning. That is, uh, what is, what is the fundamental core perspective you have on living a blessed life or a good life or if I could say a godly life? A lot of us um, have a temptation, particularly at the start of a new year, to set out a whole bunch of resolutions and aims. That's a good exercise. Uh, My wife and I, three times a year, will sit down and we'll just evaluate what were the last four months like, um, what do we need to do by way of prioritizing in our calendar key things we think the Lord's asking us to do. Relationship, it might be issues with our kids, in our marriage, it might be friends, it might be ministry opportunities, and we actually schedule our calendar out. We're both kind of type A scheduling kind of people, okay? We drive our kids nuts sometimes. All five of our kids are not type, type A people. Um, but uh, my wife and I will go away, get a cup of coffee, and we'll sit and we'll just try to look out. But the conversation is, what does God want us to focus on? What are his priorities for our life? Who are we? What are unique gifts, talents, abilities? What are the things that we need to steward for him? Our time, our resources, um, our gifts and, and talents. And we try to do that um, because we kind of follow an academic calendar 
like many of us still who have kids in school. So fall, spring, and summer is just a natural time for us to do that. Um, and so as we were having coffee on Friday, we were having this conversation about, you know, what are our ultimate aims? And it's easy to fall into a trap of creating a whole list, right, of things we want to improve in our life. Um, you know, all of us want to get in better physical shape, whatever form that might take, right? Uh, all of us want to get uh, more sleep or rest, and all of us want to get more organized, and all of us want to get our closets and garages cleaned out and keep it that way. Um, and what we can tend to do is put our focus in setting our ambitions and goals, even at the start of a new year, on very temporal things. You realize no matter how much weight you lost or how much muscle strength you gain in the next year, it's temporal, right? Now, it's helpful, right? So it's a good thing to do. I'm not setting it aside. But the scriptures are very clear that what we need to set as our main aim and our priority is a knowledge and love for Jesus Christ. And if that is set first in our heart, or if we could say it the way Christ did, seek first his kingdom, right? And then all these other things, they'll fall in order, okay? And we don't find ourselves at the end of our lives having accomplished many temporal things at the expense of accomplishing the eternal things. You know that, and I know that. Okay, so that's just a friendly reminder uh, to us as we begin to think about what are our real objectives for this new year? Are they eternal or are they temporal? Now, God's appointed to each of us a life to live for his glory. That involves a lot of temporal responsibilities, right? Uh, just being heavenly minded doesn't mean you don't have to uh, maintain your car or clean your house or do the laundry or all these necessary things, right? They may seem mundane to us, but even in the course of those things, if we have our aim set on the eternal and the glory of God, even in the mundane things, how we go about them, and not just the mundane things, but also our relationships, how we pursue our relationships can have eternal implications. And I trust that that's your desire this morning. You want to be a person who lives for the glory of God with eternal interest in mind as you go about the things he's particularly assigned to you to do. Your job, your school, your work, your exercise plan, your car maintenance uh, responsibilities, your duties uh, in the home, and so forth. Because what will happen, if not, is you'll find that those temporal things will never last by way of achieving some kind of perfection or accomplishing something. Is that closet of yours really ever going to stay organized? No, it's really not. Okay? Um, and so when we set our affections and our focus on the temporal accomplishments, one, we'll always be disappointed. And we'll find that in our busyness of accomplishing those things, we've neglected the ultimate and important things. And the text of scripture I want to take you to is a text of scripture that will elevate our thinking about what is eternal and what has God called us to, even in the course of our daily lives. And it's found in Matthew chapter 5. It's actually known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a sermon that is not just limited to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, but uh, it includes both uh, the Beatitudes and beyond through uh, chapter 6 and 7. And a survey of the Sermon on the Mount would provide for us 12 hallmarks of 
what I term living a blessed life or living uh, the good life as far as God's intention and his purposes. This morning, we don't have time to get through all 12, so my aim is to get through five, okay? The first five of these. And it's a little bit of a higher view. Um, And in doing so, my encouragement is you think about how do you pursue, if you will, those things God's assigned to you do in everyday life, but to do them with clarity of intention and purpose as to what is eternal and what will glorify God. I believe if we set this out as our goal and our aim, uh, come the end of 12 months from now, we'll be able to look back and trust that the Lord could say to us, you were faithful, okay? And you did a good job at keeping my glory and my purposes as forefront in your mind. So I trust that you're encouraged as we look at these hallmarks of a blessed life. You can argue and should argue that this is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, and particularly focusing on what a believer's life should look like. We do know it as a sermon on the mountain. It's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And not only are these hallmarks that we're going to see, they're actually great promises that should inspire hope in our lives if we live according to the values of God's kingdom. And I use the word kingdom intentionally because the theme of Matthew is Christ as king. Christ is king. He rules over all. He came as king, king of kings. He will rule for all eternity, not only presently in the future, in the millennium and beyond, recognized as the king of kings. And over 33 times in the Gospel of Matthew, references are made as to Christ's royal position as the heir to the Davidic throne and the future reigning king. So this is his emphasis. And aren't you thankful that our Lord is king? He's a loving king. He's a benevolent king. He's a king that is characterized by not self-interest, but the interest of those who follow him and their good and their best outcomes. And so this benevolent king who himself gave his very life that we might be rescued and restored to him is one that we can follow and submit to with gladness and confidence and faith and trust. And this was really what his invitation to his disciples included. And so the immediate context of his sermon, if we were to look at chapter 4, begins with the calling of the first disciples in verses 18 through 22. And Christ extends a very clear invitation to them to come, to follow him. As we see in the other Gospels, his encouragement to take up their cross, to deny themselves. There was a calling to follow Christ that came with an understanding that he was to be, yes, king, and we might use another word, Lord, who is to rule over every area of our life. And that's why death of self or self-denial is essential to enter into his kingdom and to live under his kingly rule. And we find then in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 4 that Christ begins his earthly ministry. And it's a ministry that's characterized by both a proclamation of the coming kingdom, you see that in verse 23, but also this wonderful merciful demonstration 
of a God who cares about the personal and intimate needs of those who are in the kingdom. It says he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And he went on to speak about those being brought to him who were suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And of course, not everybody who was healed or followed him had determined that they were going to make Christ king of their life. They were looking for the personal and temporal benefits that he would afford them and blinded really to the eternal benefits that he wanted to offer to them. And yet there were those who did commit themselves to following Christ. Verse 25 tells us that large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountains, mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. As we think about who these disciples are, we know that there was the intimate group of those that he had called to follow him. There's a, a broader group of disciples, many of them probably being disciples of John the Baptist, and were considering Christ to be the one that John the Baptist had prophesied of coming. And then there were those who were just hanging on, trying to get some personal benefit to Christ. And my point is, it was a mixed crowd with varying levels of commitment to Christ as their king. As he sits them there, before him on that hillside, he looks upon the audience, he understands that this is the occasion to make very clear who are those who are truly in the kingdom and who are those who are not in the kingdom. And as we consider these hallmarks of the blessed life, it presents us an occasion to evaluate our own commitment to Christ. Are these things true of us? Are we really committed to Christ as king? Do we have an eternal perspective on all that we do? Or do we just simply see Christianity as a means to some temporal benefits? There may be some in the room this morning who have been going to church for a while but have never really made a commitment to Christ as Lord and King of their life. And what I would say to you is he desires much more for you than just the meeting of temporal needs. He would love to lavish upon you the wealth of his kingdom with regard to spiritual benefits and eternal benefits that are yours. For those of us who have made that commitment to follow Christ, what we will hear this morning are the distinctive hallmarks of what our life should be characterized by. And with it comes this remarkable promise of being blessed, even happy and joyful in the midst of our temporal lives. And so Christ is, in essence, laying down a line. A line that will determine whether you're truly a follower of the king or not. And this is helpful for us, even as we evaluate what our own priorities, those who have made that commitment to make Christ their king, sometimes need to be reminded that he is king. And we need to look at our lives and to bring our activities and actions, our goals and ambitions, our purposes back into line with his ultimate aims and goals for us. And I trust that will serve you well this morning as you think about how you want to spend the upcoming year. Thomas Watson, if I could give you another book recommendation, I brought one more with me. 
Um, Thomas Watson uh, wrote a book just entitled The Beatitudes, and this focuses on this first section of the Sermon on the Mount. He's got a lot to say just on that part of it. But if you'd like to really read more about this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Thomas Watson will be a great blessing to you. Uh, John Calvin also wrote a book entitled The Beatitudes that I will quote from in a moment and recommend to you and others along the way, but that's one that uh, I wanted to mention. The reason I I mention that to you as we start out is Thomas Watson, in this book, he referred to this passage as the signs, and I love this, of divine sonship. Divine sonship. What he's saying is Christ is going to articulate here in the Sermon on the Mount the things that define us as princes and princesses of the king. As the sons and daughters of the king, these are the things that are true of us. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Life in a Fallen World, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it, the subtitle? He said this, The Sermon on the Mount underscores something that marked the whole of Jesus' ministry. He stands before us as Savior and Lord. We can never divide Jesus in two. It is all or nothing. The forgiven life and the holy life are, in Jesus' view, two sides of the same coin. This means that we must dispense with the myth that we can have Christ as Savior to begin the Christian life, and then at some later stage make a full surrender to Him as Lord. If having Christ as your Savior means belonging to the kingdom of God, as it certainly does, we cannot possibly live in His kingdom without His being King and Lord. In other words, if you are not seeking to live out the Sermon on the Mount, you lack the fundamental evidence that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Because a sermon is simply a description of the life of salvation. He continues offering these words of encouragement, undoubtedly, As Christ describes the lifestyle that is appropriate to membership in his kingdom, we sense how far short we fall. But, and I'm grateful. He says, but the sermon is not aiming to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair in us. Rather, it is intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. It describes a regal lifestyle, the new behavior pattern for the new kingdom we have entered. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if he is your king, these things are true of you and true of me. Maybe we fall short of them perfectly characterizing us, but we hold fast to his promise that he will complete that work which he began. And this is the course of life that he set for us. Well, the first hallmark that we see here is found in the section known as the Beatitudes, And I've entitled this, The Benefit of the Blessed Life. The benefit of the blessed life. This is the first hallmark, the benefit. The word blessed is used here, and it's repeated time uh, and time again in these first few verses. Blessed are, blessed are. And we want to think about this term, blessed. Uh, There are two primary words used in the text of Scripture that are defined blessed in the English Bible. The first is a Greek word, makarizo, used here, and it means a state of joy and prosperity that comes when a superior bestows his favor or honor on those under him. Let me read that again. A state of joy and prosperity. 
that comes when a superior bestows his favor or honor on those under him. What a rich and wonderful truth. That these are things that have been entrusted to us by our superior, our Lord, our King. These are the things that he recognizes are true of us now, and therefore we are considered to be blessed. Blessed of God. If you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 4, we see this term used by Paul. And here he's speaking of those, of course, who've been justified um, by faith in Christ following the example of Abraham. He says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the, the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Here he quotes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin in the Lord will not be taken into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And here Paul's using the term blessed exactly in the fashion that I defined it as. This is the state of joy and prosperity that comes when God himself bestows grace upon those who do not deserve it. Grace that leads to salvation, and particularly in this case, the righteousness that they do not possess, but are blessed with Christ's righteousness. And this defines who we are. We have been blessed by God in this fashion. The term also is used in the book of Revelation, um, actually many occasions, but if you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19... And here, of course, uh, we're seeing the end of time and this wonderful uh, chorus that's being sung. You can see beginning in verse 1 of 19. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 5, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants who fear him, the small and the great. He's speaking of those who are in the kingdom, right? You see that at the end of verse 6. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And then we come to verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And then I fell and worshipped. See, the term blessed is used to describe our status of being honored and blessed by God himself with the work of righteousness that allows us to be recognized as heirs of the king, citizens of the kingdom. We see this again in chapter 22 of Revelation, just as the great text of Scripture concludes... And I love this. 
This is us who are blessed. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, eternal life, and may enter by the gates into the city. There's a contrast. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. What's the distinction made? Those who are blessed with the atoning work of Christ's righteousness applied to us and salvation granted and brought into the kingdom and those who are outside the kingdom. And it's the same distinction that Christ is making in Matthew chapter 5. There are the blessed and there are those who are not blessed. The Hebrew word that means the same thing is used in Scripture. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29. The word is esher. And here it's translated with the word happy. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. So do you understand the association? Those who are truly saved are therefore the ones who are joyful and happy because they're blessed by God. And maybe the most familiar use of this term for you would be found in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who what? That's right. And a contrast is provided in the text there by the psalmist between a man who walks in a path of obedience and faith, who meditates on the word of God, delights in God's word, and he'll be like a tree that bears fruit, fruitfulness, right? And the contrast is made between the one who follows in the way of scoffers and sinners is like the chaff which the wind drives away. One is sure, anchored, eternal, prosperous, living and alive. The other is dead, temporal, has no assurance and no confidence. And so Scripture is very clear in making this contrast between those who are blessed and those who are not blessed, those who are saved and those who are not saved. And again, this is Christ's intention here in this text. And so when we hear these words, it's not just this wonderful set of quotations that we can frame or cross-stitch on a pillow. These are not just platitudes for us. They're defining characteristics of those who are in the kingdom and those who are not. And so therefore, with this description in mind, we understand that Christ is saying it's not because you do these things that you're saved. It's because I saved you, these things are true of who you are. Now that's important. And maybe to explain that a little further, it's important to note that the original language structure in the text places the emphasis differently than how we might read it in the English. What Christ is saying is, because one is in the kingdom, they will be characterized by certain behaviors and attitudes. The English reading might leave you with the impression that the cause and effect is that if one is poor in the spirit or one mourns over their sin or one who is humble, they will earn or merit the kingdom. But that's not what Christ is saying. It's those who he's placed his loving affection on, who he's called unto himself and he's granted faith that leads to repentance and salvation. This is what will characterize those who are truly the redeemed. 
And so it's not that this becomes a set of aims or ambitions for us to pursue, to somehow earn or merit more of the favor of the king. That's the trap that we're prone to fall into because we want to take some credit. We want to believe that some effort on our part is going to assure us the eternal benefits that the king wants to afford us. But in so doing, we rob the king of the glory that he alone deserves. So that's not the point here. But when we talk about a blessed life, these are things that are true of us. The first he says there in verse 3 is that we're poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, the word poor, uh, the Greek word tokos there, means dependent upon another for life. Those who trust Christ alone for their salvation are those who have to recognize I have no ability in and of myself to earn or merit God's favor. And so it must be true of those who are in the kingdom that they are poor in spirit. They are dependent alone upon God's mercy and his compassion and his grace to rescue them. And you see this principle followed, verse 4, where it talks about those who, are, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a grieving over sin. And we understand uh, through the text of Scripture, particularly uh, the testimony of Paul in the book of Romans, that it's those who are brought under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, who then what? Mourn or grieve over their sin. Those in darkness delight in sin. They find pleasure in sin. They don't mourn over sin. It's only those who have been brought out of darkness and into the light and aided through the testimony of the Spirit who can mourn their sin. This is true also of those who are gentle or can be translated humble, for they shall inherit the earth. What's the blessing? The inheritance that awaits us in the future. But it's contingent upon whether or not we are truly humble. I'm always mindful of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Where Paul writes, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The true believer, the one who is benefiting from the blessing of salvation, is the one who has been enabled to recognize that there's nothing they can do to accomplish the goodness of God's law. They cannot meet his standard. And it produces, rightly so, an utter humiliation. We all come to Christ through the cross. And on the cross, our sins, the full weight, the entire weight of our sins were placed upon Christ. The recognition of the extensiveness of our sinfulness and our failure to meet God's holy standard produces in us a necessary humiliation that then looks to Christ alone for his rescue. And we won't take the time, but you understand the principle as you look through the rest of these beatitudes, whether it's speaking of being meek or hungering and thirsting for righteousness or being merciful or pure in heart or being a peacemaker or even suffering persecution. These are all aspects that characterize the believer's new life in the kingdom. They also are representative of a heart that is more like the king. 
heart that has foregone the pride and arrogance and is willing even to seek resolution of conflict, a peacemaker, for instance. They see there in verse 9. Who's the ultimate peacemaker? That's right. Christ made peace for us on the cross. And so really what we find here is a description of not only the saved life, but the sanctified life. Because we understand how the king has loved us. We're called then to love others in the same fashion. And it might even be as we pursue this life that we will suffer persecution, rejection, hostility. It's in those moments we identify with the king maybe the most. Because he did that on our behalf. Thomas Watson goes on to say, How are the saints already blessed? They are partakers of the divine nature, not by an incorporation into the divine essence, but by transformation into the divine likeness. This is blessedness begun. And this is what Christ is saying. If you're really in the kingdom, these things will become true. Of not who you are just coming into the kingdom by way of salvation, but how you will live by way of sanctification. This is your hope. This should be your hope. Well, the second hallmark that I want to point to in this sermon is found in verses 13 through 16. It's what I term the witness of the blessed life. The witness of the blessed life. And you know these verses well. Christ begins to say, if this is true, and you're in the kingdom, you are the salt of the earth. He makes a clarifying point here, but if the salt has become tasteless, can anything make it salty again? No, it's of no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So he presents to us this imagery of, of salt, which has the effect of, of preserving and fighting de- decay and, and disease and things that will uh, continue to, to bring decline and And obviously this is speaking to the issue of sin and its influence in the world, but we now who are being sanctified have the ability to to demonstrate the character of God in a way that brings hope and light to the world. And that's exactly the illustration that he uses in verse 14. You are the light of the world. And you know the story there and the image that he presents there. No one lights a candle or a lamp and covers it with a basket because its function is to remove the shadows, to light a path. In this case, it's a path that should lead to God. And he's saying our life has the ability to remove the shadows of darkness for people around us so that they might find their way to God. We know this is true in verse 16. It says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds, how you live your sanctified life, and glorify your Father, that they will come to glorify Him and worship Him who is in heaven. This is the hope of our life, not only that we've been rescued, but that He will use us as a means of rescuing others. So when we think about our priorities and our ambitions and our goals this year, are we thinking about just living a better Christian life for our own benefit? Or are we thinking in terms of living an obedient life, a life like the king so that others can come to find him as well? That should be our aim at work. 
not just getting a raise or promotion. It should be that we go about our work in such a way that people will see our good deeds, meaning our, our Christ-like character and practice, so that they will come to see the Father. It doesn't matter how much frustration or drudgery or even difficulty that you might face in work. We know that that's going to be the case, right? God promised that work's going to become difficult as a result of the fall. Unbelievers face the same difficulty in work and in life. It's how we approach those things with joy and confidence and faith and integrity and diligence and with the aim of the good of our coworker and our boss and even our clients or whoever it might be, that we go about our work in a radically different way than the unbeliever does. And it makes them desire to know why. And hopefully we'll provide that opportunity for us to answer that question in telling them about the king that we serve and what are the greater and eternal benefits he wants to extend to them. And so, a witness should be a hallmark of the blessed life. Number three, I've just termed the heart of the blessed life. And Christ, knowing our propensity, and certainly those who were listening to him, who wanted to uh, consider the true spiritual life would be one that is characterized by external practice. He immediately addresses that problem by talking about the issue of the heart. And I'll just do this quickly. You can read the text. In verse 21 and 22, he talks about the issue of uh, the law. You shall not commit murder. Okay? His audience knew that. That was part of the Old Testament law. But what does Christ say? He says, the one who harbors hatred or anger in their heart towards one who's just as guilty of violating the law. Whether you strike a person and take their life or not doesn't really matter. It's the condition of your heart that makes you a sinner. That behavior is just the external manifestation of the condition of your heart. And so Christ says here, referring to them as a fool, shall, they shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. He goes on, in verse 27 through 28, to talk about the law of not committing adultery. They knew that, right? And they had all kinds of formulations for justifying divorce and so forth, but what Christ basically says to them in verses 31 through 32, he says, listen, you've been called in a covenant commitment to love your spouse. Don't look for an excuse for divorce. You look for every excuse to live in unity and in peace and to reconcile your differences. That comes from a heart that is seeking not just your own good, but the good of your spouse and the preservation of your relationship. Yes, there's an allowance there that they've committed adultery, that you can do that technically, but what he's aiming at is, are you fulfilling your covenant commitment to love your spouse? And certainly lesser offenses should not results in division and separation between those who've made a covenant commitment to each other. The issue of the heart is what is his primary concern. In verse 33 through 36, he talks about 
making of oaths. And it was customary at that time for people to make public declarations or even written declarations of promises or commitments. But often they were professions that were made and commitments that were made that were made under false pretenses. The people making those oaths had no intention of keeping those oaths. And so they were made not out of a genuine heart of truth and commitment to integrity. And that's what Christ speaks to in verses 34 through 36. He says, listen, your yes needs to be yes, and your no needs to be no. When you speak, it needs to be true of what you think and believe. Don't give false pretenses or make public statements that differ from what you actually believe and think in your heart. He goes on in verses 38 through 42 to talk about uh, the issue of justice and demanding justice and how you can justify, even according to the Old Testament law, an eye for an eye in verse 38 and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, he says, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. What's Christ saying? This is something radically different. You can just lean into the law, and certainly you can justify a give and take kind of relationship. But he's saying, here, turn the other cheek. He's saying, don't respond in kind. Not in kind how you've been treated to them. Respond in kind as to how Christ has treated you. And it culminates here in verses 43 and 44, where he says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What's his point here? He's saying, if you're going to love people like I've loved you, then you need to understand that you don't just love your friends or your neighbors and hate your enemies. You have to love your enemies. That's exactly how I pursued you. As a result of that, I restored that relationship. And you who are an enemy are now called a friend. This is radical. What he's doing is he's saying to this audience, I'm elevating you from just the temporal. I'm elevating you from just the physical circumstances, the justifiable kind of patterns of relating to people. It's give and take, keeping of accounts, demanding rights and justice when you've been violated. And he's saying, follow my example. And if so, you will be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Absolutely. Imagine that there are those sitting at his feet who heard this, who could not comprehend that. That made no logical or rational sense to us because they were totally defined by the standards of the world. Totally defined by the practice of Judaism at that point, which was hypocrisy. What we call Pharisaism, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, where what was practiced on the outside was not true of the heart. And so Christ confronts this. Well, I won't get to five, but I'll give you the last one, number four here. I just term this the humility of the blessed life, chapter six, verses one through 18. He starts off by saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Notice that Christ gives us 
the cause or the motive? Why did most people practice righteousness? And he was concerned that some who were following him might think that's what he was asking of them, to just practice righteousness before men. What was their motivation to be noticed by them? The motivation that he was confronting was not one of humility, but of pride. And so he gives us three particular examples. In verses 2 through 4, he talks about giving to those who are poor or in need. And he says, some of you... uh, Sound a trumpet, and you announce your good deeds of charity and giving. And while this is impressive to others and receives honor by men, he says in the end of verse 2, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's, it's kind of a poetic way of saying that that's how innocent you are okay. of any Sinful motivation in this regard. You don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That means not only are you not announcing with trumpets what you're doing, you're not even considering personally and internally how this is benefiting you or what, um, I would say, attribution of accomplishment that you've done. Sometimes we don't sound trumpets, right? But in our own heads... We applaud ourselves. So again, he's getting at the heart, but he's talking about the distinction between pursuing things that look like you're in the kingdom, but really not being true, in essence, of the condition of your commitment to him as king in your heart. He goes on to use the example of praying, some who pray publicly in verses 5 through 15, and then the one who prays privately in humility Then he talks about fasting as another common religious practice that's recognized publicly in verses 16 through 18. But then he talks about fasting privately in such a way that others would not even know what you have done. In each of these contexts, in verse 4 and verse 6 and verse 18, he says, it's your Father who sees what is done in secret who will reward you. See, it's God's looking at the heart. That's a principle we see all throughout Scripture. And so in this occasion, he's saying to his audience, listen, don't get caught up in pursuing righteous behavior because you think somehow that's going to bring you the affirmation and approval of men or of God. God's looking here. God's looking here. Well, I wish we had more time uh, to look at the remaining characteristics of a blessed life. But let me just conclude by saying this. Again, as we begin a new year, some of you here might need to evaluate whether you really are a true follower of Christ, whether you really are a genuine believer. Maybe you come from a church background where what was taught to you was a lot of external practices, religious practices, and keeping of lists and lists of, of laws and duties and tasks. And you might be caught up or prone to think that that's somehow how you can earn or merit God's wonderful grace and forgiveness. And I assure you, you cannot do enough. You just can't do enough to meet God's holy standard. And because of that, he offers you everything that you need to have his law satisfied through the work of Christ. 
Come to Christ today and make Him your Lord and King. Others of us, as we look at our year and setting out ambitions and priorities and plan our calendars and things like that, may just need a simple reminder to make sure that our hearts are right and that these things are true of us and what we seek in the mundane and the temporal, that we're looking for the ultimate eternal purposes of God and His glory and take the time to evaluate why am I going to do what I'm going to do this year? Why is it that I'm going to read through the Bible in the entire year? I actually don't find that instruction in Scripture. What I find in Scripture is delight yourself in the law of the Lord. It's about knowing Him and meeting Him in His Word. It's not duty, it's delight. Your service of those in need, you do that out of gratitude because you've been so blessed by a God who's met every one of your needs. And because of that, you trust Him for your needs and can give freely and generously. This is about knowing Him and who He is to you. And so all the things that you want to pursue in your life this year, spiritual, and if you will, just the temporal and mundane, needs to be brought into account with what our motivations are and our understanding of who we are in the kingdom of God. And I trust in thinking about those things that will aid you so that you won't find yourself on a treadmill performance spiritually or just disappointment in the temporal. Okay? Your closet's going to get messed up again, I promise you. You'll clean your, org- uh, your garage out again. You're going to gain a few extra pounds next Christmas, I promise you. Those things are going to happen, okay? But if our hearts are set on Christ and His greater good, we know that we will spend this year faithfully and profitably for His glory. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, aid us as we calibrate our pursuits in this life in accord with these wonderful truths of who we are. Christ, we worship you as our King. We bow down before you. We don't want that to just be an external, physical expression. We want that to be the condition of our hearts every day. That we rise from our beds with gratitude and in submission to you. That your will and your way is what we desire above all things. We pray that you would draw us in relationship to you, in prayer, in reading of your word, of study of the scripture, of Christian fellowship, of service in your church, and evangelism and outreach, that we would do all these things with joy because we know you and we love you. Cultivate these great things in our lives for your honor, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.